Hello and welcome to This Shit Really Happened, the true crime podcast where we deep dive into the most disturbing, depraved, and downright gruesome true crimes in history. My name is M, and we are kicking it old school, going back to our roots a little bit again on this episode because I am flying solo on this one. So, you know, we're going back to the very beginnings when it was just me just sitting in my living room with a microphone and my MacBook and recording these episodes. Um, It's been a while since we've put out an episode. God, when was the last one that was released? I think back in September it was. My goodness gracious how things have changed since September. Like when I tell you my life low-key fell apart a little bit, like after we dropped that episode, it was like, oh my gosh, so many things happened. We wanted so badly to do a couple Halloween episodes and then we just couldn't find time to sit down and record. And then uh, what ended up happening to me that really messed me up was that I got laid off from my job that I had been working at for since 2018 and I got freaking laid off from you know the insurance company who shall not be named but you know if you just go and google car insurance company recent layoffs you can you know figure out which insurance company I worked for so that threw a wrench in tons of my plans I was actually in the process of buying a house things all through with the house because I lost my job and then I had to move and I moved like 40 minutes away from where I was living previously and now Autumn and I don't live just like around the corner from each other anymore so like getting together to record is a struggle and a half in itself so you know it's not just hey come over and it's two minutes around the corner it's like a genuine drive now for me to go down to her, her to come up to me. So we're trying to figure it out. Maybe we can do a little, you know, thing on Zoom or something to to make it work, you know, so we can kind of get back into doing these things together. But, you know, for the time being, until we get that figured out, I figured, why not? I'll just go ahead and go back to how it was when this thing started. And I'll start putting out some some more episodes for you guys with just little old me. So I hope that's cool with everybody. I hope nobody was tuning into this, you know, hoping that it was going to be the both of us. If so, I'm sorry. I promise we're trying to work on it. Um, But yeah, I'm going to go ahead and, you know release a few episodes that I kind of have had on the back burner where, you know, I've got the research and everything done for them, but I just haven't been able to, you know, we haven't been able to find a time to get them recorded. So, you know, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna rip a couple uh, solo episodes and hopefully it'll be a little charming for us to go back to how things were when we first started this. Um, I'm also trying something a little bit new. If you maybe have already noticed there, if if I do this right, we're going to put a big old asterisk on this. So I might be just completely talking about nothing because I haven't actually tried to do this prior to starting to record. Um, But I put some background music in. I think it gives a nice little ambiance while you're, you know, listening. If you're driving in your car, if you're like doing dishes, laundry adds a little extra something something to just have that background music playing in the background while you know we go over this case and I tell you guys all about it just makes it seem like it adds a little little je ne sais quoi we'll say a little extra something something into the background to have that that music going and you know I found something that I thought was a little ooky spooky to put in the background really set the set the mood so to speak um, cause we have quite a case to get into today. So uh, like I said in the Instagram post, if y'all saw the Instagram, if you don't follow the Instagram, you should, it's at TSRH podcast. Please go follow it. We're almost at a thousand followers. Oh my God. Super exciting. Um, but as I said on the Instagram post, this is going to be part one of two. So, um, yeah, without further ado, we're going to go ahead and get into it because I know what you guys are here for. I know what I'm here for. We want to talk about this case. 
So this is the case of the freeway killer, AKA William Bonin. So trigger warnings are just general things to be cautionary of before we get into this case. Um, there's going to be mentions, graphic mentions of kidnapping, rape, child abuse, CSA, and some use of homophobic language and slurs in quotes or, you know, things that I'm quoting directly from the source that I got them from. So just be aware of that to stick to, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, to stick to the original source and keep it as like true to form as possible. I will be saying these quotes exactly how they were found in those sources, just to say, you know, true to the source material. But I did want to give you guys a heads up if you are sensitive to those sorts of things or that sort of language, you know, just be aware there, there may be a couple moments in here where we're dealing with something along those lines. Um, but yeah, without further ado, we'll go ahead and get into this. So we are going back to the last day of summer on September 8th, 1975. And this was when then 14-year-old David McVicker was hitchhiking his way from a friend's house in Garden Grove back to his home, back to his home in Orange County, California. As he was waiting for a ride, he said a man in a blue car pulled over and asked him for directions. David describes the man as having, quote, a big smile on his face, long brown hair, blue jeans, and grunge looking just like everybody else back then. After giving the man directions, they figured out that he was actually going in the same direction that David needed to go. So the man offered David a ride. And, you know, being that this was the 70s, again, a case taking place in the 70s, everybody was hitchhiking. Um, I actually heard about this case for the first time. I was listening to an episode of the I Survived podcast. Um, if you guys haven't listened to that, it's super good. It's just like the television show that I don't even know if the TV show is still on, but it's it's literally just an, an iteration of the television show. Um, but David McVicker was on an episode of the I Survive podcast and he was he was telling his story and he said like he hitchhiked everywhere just like everybody was doing in the 70s so it was nothing for him to say yes to accept a ride when this man this grunge looking man um offered that ride to him because he had done it you know a million times before he was actually in the process of hitchhiking so he's like you know what uh, This man seems nice enough. He needed directions. What a great coincidence that we're going in the same direction. I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to take him up on his offer for a ride. So um, he said this ride started off as very normal, but it did not take long for it to turn into a situation that David was incredibly uncomfortable with. The man started asking about his thoughts on homosexuality and if he'd ever tried anything with a man before. It just so happened, right as this question kind of started, that they arrived at the stop that David was actually planning to get off at. So instead of answering the question, David just basically ignored it and just asked the man to let him out of the car. However, instead of dropping David off, the man took a left turn and began speeding away. And now realizing that the man had no intention of letting him go, David tried opening the door to jump out. However, this is when the man pulled a gun on David and told him to close the door and shut up. David recalled that after the man pulled out the gun, his entire demeanor changed. He went from smiling and happy-go-lucky to telling David that he was going to kill them, going to kill him. And I feel like we see this a lot in cases like this where the ride starts off super normal, they're just having a regular conversation. And one of the scariest things to hear about this in these cases, in my opinion, at least, is like that switch, knowing that human beings are capable of having that sort of emotional shut off and knowing that like the shut off is the reality of who they are and what was happening before, like the happy-go-lucky, the normal conversation, the the kindness, the smiling, that's like the front they put on to seem normal is, is just that a front in, in the reality of their actual true self is that there's like, there's like nothing behind the eyes. It's like the lights are on, but nobody's home. But <laughs> instead of being like, you know, I, I know people say that a lot about like, 
to call somebody like dumb, like <laughs> the lights are on, but nobody's home. But in this case, it's like lights are on, no one's home because there's just, there's like not a human in there. They're just a monster wearing human skin. So like hearing recollections and stories from people who have experienced that in real life, I think that's honestly one of like the most terrifying things you could probably ever experience in your life is seeing somebody just flip a switch like that. So after the switch flips again, the man has the gun held to David. He's telling him to basically like sit down, shut up, or I'm going to kill you. They're driving around and they drove around for about an hour before the man pulled the car into a deserted field in a near intersection in Tustin, California. After they parked, the man reached around David to lock the passenger door and then ordered David to take his clothes off. Initially, David refused and tried again to get out of the car. This absolutely enraged the man who pulled David back into the car and started to beat him. And he beat him quite brutally um, to the point where, you know, David was trying to fight back at first, but then... You know, David is a 14-year-old boy. This is a grown man who is just, you know, absolutely unrelenting, punching him over and over and over again. And so he, you know, he can do nothing but kind of, like, cower and and wait for it to be done. Um, And then after the beating, which was just the man's way to, to get David to, you know, essentially just be beaten into submission... He forcibly stripped David, bound him with his own t-shirt, and began to rape him. The man had wrapped David's shirt around his neck and put a crowbar through the sleeves. And as he assaulted David, he twisted the crowbar to tighten the shirt around David's neck. So essentially, not only is he sexually assaulting him, he is strangling him, essentially garroting him with his own t-shirt as this is happening. So David is trying the best he can to just essentially try to hold on and, and just wait for it to end. But he's he's slowly slipping into unconsciousness at this point from being strangled. And with his last breath, he utters the words, God help. And by some miracle, these words made the man stop strangling and assaulting David who recalled that as the man got off of him, he apologized to David for hurting him. And then he finished himself off by masturbating into a rag. He then threw the rag out the window, turned back to David and asked where he lived so he could take David home. On the way there, the man taunted David about potentially coming back to assault him again, saying, quote, you know what? You're an all right guy. I was going to kill you, but I want to come back for you and use you again. David gave the man directions to a location about a block away from his house. As David was getting out of the car, the man said, quote, I'll see you again. And David's like, I think the fuck not. Like, it's it's a miracle that David even survived this encounter. So he's like, I will be damned if I'm going to let you find out where I live. And the fact that the man was explicitly saying to him, like, you know, I was going to kill you, but I would really love to come back and do this again like they just had like a fun like little hangout date not that he had just brutally beaten and assaulted a 14 year old boy in the front seat of his car like this man is a sick fuck like we will get into so many other things but just this alone he was so so sick in the head it's absolutely disgusting so david essentially He's thinking, he's like, I can't let this guy find out where I live. So he has him, has the man drop him off at this location. And he starts to essentially just like run and duck and weave and go around, around houses and down alleys. He's trying to throw the man off his trail. He doesn't want this man to find out where he lives. So he does this for a while. And once he's confident that he has done enough evasive maneuvers to throw this man off his trail, he finally goes back to his house. However, though, as he puts his keys into the door of his house to unlock it, he hears a honk from behind him and he turns around and he sees the man in his car watching out the window. So all of the effort that he had gone through to 
throw this man off his trail. It was for naught. Like, poor David, he probably spent so long just running and trying to do the best he could to make sure this man wasn't going to be able to find where he lived. Just unfortunately for all that effort to be in vain in the man to still be able to follow him home. And David was absolutely terrified because the man now knew where he lived and definitely could come back for David if he chose to. So David immediately, he's like, that's not going to happen. I refuse to let this happen to me again. I need to tell somebody. So that's exactly what he did. He told his mother about the attack and together they went to the police. They eventually, after being bopped around to a couple of different police departments because he was like kidnapped in one area and uh, the man pulled out the gun in another area, but then the assault happened in another area. There were a whole bunch of different jurisdictions involved in this, but eventually they were directed to the Fountain Valley Police Department where David told an officer his story. And the officer, like we see way too many times in cases like this, initially did not believe David's story. So David was essentially like, okay, you don't believe me. Let me take you out to the field where it happened and I can show you the rag he used to clean himself off after. So they do exactly that. They go back to the field and the officer finds that rag and, you know, his story is tune changes and he finally believes David and they take his story of his assault and his kidnapping seriously. So... Poor David, he had to go straight back to school after this. Like, this happened on the last day of summer. I think he was going to be a, what's 14? 14's a freshman in high school. So not only is he starting high school, it's his first day of high school. He also has all of this on his plate to deal with. Um, And it was kind of, you know, radio silence a little bit for a couple weeks. And it wasn't until three weeks after David's attack that he was called into the office at school where a sheriff was waiting and told him that they wanted to go um, take him to do a lineup. A man had been arrested for attempting to kidnap and assault another teenage boy only a couple weeks after David had been attacked. This other teenage boy had managed to get away and also take down the license plate of the car that his would-be kidnapper was driving. So they take David to the police station to do the lineup. They show him everybody, of course, you know, everybody at this point knows how police lineup works. I don't think I have to describe it to you. Um, But he identifies his attacker immediately. He picks him out of that crowd instantaneously. And the man that he identified was then 28-year-old William Bonin. Bonin was actually pretty well-known to police at this point. He had a vast criminal history and had just been released from prison on parole after serving five years for a 1969 conviction for the sexual assault of five boys in Los Angeles. He hadn't even been out of prison for a full year before he had abducted and raped David and attempted to abduct and rape another boy. So we're going to get into a little bit of, you know, like we usually do, now talk about William Bond and his upbringing and essentially what what led us to get to this point. So, you know, what turns a monster into a monster, essentially? I think the question we've, we've posed so many times before on other episodes is that question of nature versus nurture. And, you know, this is another one that's that's questionable, I think. You know, if he hadn't had the things that we're going to talk about in his childhood happened to him, you know, would he have turned out the way that he turned out? I think that's a fascinating question, you know abnormal psychology and things like that you know the mind the mind is a crazy place but you know we'll kind of answer that question or think about that question while we're going through this because i always think it's really interesting to to think about so william george bonin was born january 8th 1947 in willimantic connecticut he was the second of three sons born to robert leonard bonin senior and alice dorothy cody Bonin's parents were both alcoholics. His father, who was a World War II veteran, often physically abused his wife and children. His mother suffered from severe mood swings and spent much of her free time in a bingo parlor while her sons remained unattended at home. They were like OG latchkey kids, except, you know, instead of the parents being out working, the parents were out drinking and playing bingo. Um, His mother also had a very domineering and emasculating presence in Bonin's life. So, you know, another case where we have um, 
a very violent perpetrator who has some deep-seated mommy issues going on. Bonin's father had a gambling addiction, and his losses forced Bonin's mother to obtain a job at a local thread mill. So, you know, no more just drinking and playing bingo all day. She actually had to go get a job because his father was putting them into serious, serious debt because of his gambling habits. And actually, in January of 1950, his father gambled away their home in Andover, Connecticut, after losing a game of high-stakes poker, forcing the family to have to move in with Bonin's maternal grandmother in Wilmantic. So, literally, like, I don't... How bad do you have to fuck up to gamble away your house? Like, get help, buddy. You needed help. You got a really bad gambling addiction. So, Bonin and his brothers were actively raised Catholic. They attended St. Mary's Catholic School, where staff repeatedly made complaints of Bonin's aggression towards other students, truancy, and other misbehavior. After riding his bike into a group of young girls, um, Bonin was briefly placed in juvenile hall. So, he was, a, he was a fuck from, you know, from the beginning. He is like, that's such a, a like... After riding his bike into a group of young girls, so I'm essentially imagining, like, he's just riding on his bike, sees this group of girls, and just, like, starts hitting them with his bike, essentially. Um, so just just an absolute shithead from the beginning. After returning home from his time in juvie, Bonin was reportedly more hostile and uncooperative toward his parents than he had been before the punishment. On September 6, 1953, Bonin and his older brother Robert Jr. were placed at the Franco-American School, which was a Catholic convent located in Lowell, Massachusetts. The convent was known to enforce harsh physical discipline for major and minor breaches of conduct, with assaults taking place in the most extreme cases. So, parents are alcoholics, father has a gambling addiction, not a great situation at home, he just spent however much time in juvie, and now he is being placed in this convent where, you know, the situation is not any better. Uh, Bonin recollected being physically bullied by other children at the convent and recalled a specific instance where he was defended from the bullying by another boy who was a 13-year-old that also resided at the convent. And, you know, of course, in Bonin's recollection, you know, this was, this was not something that this boy just did out of good faith. So according to Bonin, after defending him from the bullies, this boy took him to a restroom and demanded sexual favors as quote-unquote repayment for him defending Bonin. Bonin agreed to perform these sexual acts under the condition that the older boy's hands would be bound with a towel to make Bonin himself feel safer. However, during the acts, Bonin alleged the boy had undone his restraints, then tied Bonin himself up and performed fellatio on him before sexually assaulting it. Bonin was to remain at the, con- the convent until May 31st, 1955, when he returned to live with his parents in a home owned by Bonin's paternal grandfather in Mansfield, Connecticut. In Mansfield, Bonin attended Annie Vinton Elementary School with his younger brother, Paul, There, he was known to classmates as, to no surprise, a juvenile delinquent. So he's, he's, you know, he's found his niche, I guess, is a way to put it. And he's sticking with it. You know, he's like, I am a delinquent. I don't know anything else. I might be changing schools, but I am not changing who I am. Delinquent till I die. Um... At this point, Bonin was also starting to realize that he had a growing attraction to younger boys and his male teachers. And this shame that he felt about his own, you know, budding, blooming sexual orientation, this led him to just further isolate himself from his peers. Bonin's parents also continued to actively neglect him and his brothers, leading them to sometimes go days without food, eating only when they were given food by their neighbors. From their early childhoods to 1957, Bonin and his brothers were also frequently placed in the care of their maternal grandfather, who had sexually abused their mother up until her adulthood, and whom she suspected of molesting his grandsons. Which this is... This is just something that really infuriates me, like, when parents know that a family member is a predator, like, not just because it's been something that has happened multiple times to people around them, but when the abuse had directly happened to them, 
and then you still allow your children to be in the presence of this predator. Like, I don't give a fuck who it is. I don't give a shit if it's your your brother, your sister, your aunt, your uncle, your mother, your father, your grandpa, who, who it is doesn't matter. If you are a parent and you know that this family member is a predator and you know because they have assaulted you and you have direct experience and direct knowledge of this and you still turn a blind eye to it for whatever reason there's nothing that could justify it but for whatever reason you try to say to yourself in your head for why you're letting this person be around your children you're a monster like you you don't by no means from what we've already read was you know William Bonin's mother a good mother but like for you know like Jesus put a draw a line in the sand somewhere lady like come on it just absolutely infuriates me to hear to you know read stories or hear cases about these children no matter like what how good or how bad these kids might be like if they were a bad kid quote unquote or had you know already a history like it doesn't matter giving them letting them be in the presence of a sexual predator like that is also probably not going to help the underlying issues that they already have like like this is definitely such a question of nature versus nurture because like if anybody had come through for William Bonin and been like you know what like let's get you out of this situation let's get you and your brothers out of this situation if anybody had stepped up for this kid like how we have turned out and it's such a shame because we'll never know we only know like the reality of who he was and we can theorize you know time and time again about how it might have worked had he actually had a good parent in his life but you know we'll never know anyways moving on so um in addition bonin's parents occasionally left bonin and paul his younger brother under the care of their eldest brother robert jr who having received the brunt of their father's abuse, often beat and belittled his siblings. As a result of his complete lack of adult supervision and direction, Bonin began committing petty crimes such as stealing hubcaps, license plates, and metal tags off of cars around town. In 1957, Bonin was arrested for these crimes and he was again sent to juvie, where he alleged that he was molested by an adult counselor while he was incarcerated. After his release from juvie, Bonin began molesting his younger brother, Paul. This went on for six months before Bonin's mother found out, and instead of, you know, sending Bonin away or, you know, getting Paul out of the house somehow, she just forced Bonin to go sleep in a separate bedroom. So there is just insane abuse, um, you know, physical, sexual, mental, verbal abuse happening all over in this household. It's like, it was completely never-ending. Bonin also later confessed to fondling and performing oral sex on young boys in an instance where he stripped naked in front of a 10-year-old girl. He also attempted to develop an incestuous relationship with a female cousin, so he really, there was no line to like what he would or wouldn't do in this instance. He's already showing that he has no impulse control and he is not opposed to crossing those lines, even being as young as he was at this time. In late 1960, the family moved to Downey, California after their home was nearly foreclosed on due to Bonin's father's gambling debts again. So he didn't gamble the house away this time, but he had so much debts that the house they were able to get, I think it was Andover, um, they almost lost that house because they just couldn't pay for it because he was spending so much money on gambling. So they moved to, again, Downey, California in 1960. So Bonin's in high school now, um, and while he was in high school, he was again very much so regarded as a social outcast, though this time he is outwardly well-behaved. So, you know, he's still having those, those thoughts and those desires, the perversions internally, but outwardly, he's at least trying to put on a facade that he is, you know, a well-behaved good person. By his teen years, Bonin had developed an obsession with pedophilia, and his emerging homosexuality became a huge point of contention between him and his mother. Bonin did attempt to date a girl named Linda to appease his mother, but recalled that he never truly felt comfortable with or around her. 
After dropping out of high school in 1966, Bonin began luring and molesting several neighborhood children. His mother reportedly refused to acknowledge these acts or his escalating antisocial behavior. So again, his mother just sticking her fucking head in the sand. She's like, mm, suddenly I can't read. I'm blind. You know, like, <laughs> I can't see. I'm blind. I can't read. I'm blind. Oh, my God. I can't see. I'm blind. So, but essentially, you get the point. She just refuses, 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 refuses to acknowledge or accept or confront the fact that these things are going on and her son is doing these things. Um, eventually, she does end up evicting him from the household for, quote, undisclosed reasons. But, you know, too little, too late on this one. Nice try, lady. You probably just got him out of here. She's like, I don't want to deal with this anymore. Like, too much is happening. I can't deal with it. But like, come on, girl. You had so many chances to like get help for your kid and you just turned a blind eye to it. Like, and now that it's getting too much for you to handle, you just like kick your teenage son out of the house. Whatever. She sucks. Terrible mother. 100% sucks. <laughs> that's my that's my ruling on this one. So lacking motivation to get a job and frequently borrowing money from his parents, Bonin actually ended up joining the United States Air Force with his mother's encouragement in December of 1966. Bonin and Linda also got engaged with encouragement again from Bonin's mother, who thought that if Bonin got married, it would, quote, cure his homosexuality. While in the military, Bonin had over 700 hours of combat and patrol time, that of which she said led him to developing feelings of hatred towards humanity. Despite this, he was known to frequently put his own life in danger to save that of his comrades. And on one occasion, while he was under, while they were under enemy fire, he like put himself in ways of that enemy fire to save a wounded fellow airman, an action for which he received a medal for recognition of his bravery. And I think like this right here really again goes to show that like he had it in him to be a good person he just had so many other like issues whether they were innate in him or caused by that horrible upbringing that he had that just pulled away from any good that he might have wanted to do it's like for him to be putting himself in harm's way for the benefit of other people like that just goes to show like he could have been in my opinion at least he might have been able to be a good person had he been raised by good people. According to Bonin, he engaged in allegedly consensual relations with four young girls and had a number of, quote, had a, quote, number of homosexual encounters in Vietnam, as well as a session with a 25-year-old female prostitute in Hong Kong. He also confessed to sexually assaulting two soldiers under his command at gunpoint. So... <laughs> It's like he does something really great. He gets a medal of recognition and bravery. But then on the other hand, it's like, it's literally like Jekyll and Hyde here. Like, okay, great. He does something awesome. He helps a fellow airman. He saves his life. But then he is, you know, having sex with underage girls in Vietnam. He is attacking his fellow, like people under his command by gunpoint. So it's like, you know, one step forward, 85 steps back with this guy. Bonin served nearly two years in the Air Force before receiving an honorable just discharge on October 25th, 1968, at the age of 21. Upon returning home, Bonin discovered that Linda, who by this stage had given birth to their son, had left him to marry another man. And like, good on Linda. <laughs> Girl, get out of there. Take your son and go. Get away from this man. So after this, Bonin got a job working at a gas station. Um, he was just one of the gas station attendants, and he ends up moving back in with his parents in down. So now we're going to kind of get into, you know, where he, you know, we'll go back in time a little bit. Um, actually, not back in time. We're still in 1968. I don't know why the fuck I said we're going back in time. It's still 1968. But we're going to now get into more of the things that really start to get him that criminal history that the police we're very familiar with back in 1975 when um, David McVicker identified him in that lineup. We're going to get into those things now and really kind of dive into that, that criminal past. So on November 17th, 1968, Bonin encountered 14-year-old Billy Jones in Arcadia, California, while he was driving his mother's white station wagon. 
Billy accepted Bonin's offer of a ride home, but soon attempted to flee the vehicle in response to Bonin's repeated questions regarding homosexuality. After driving him to a after driving him to a shopping center that was in the area, Bonin handcuffed Billy and then proceeded to rape him, knocking him unconscious in the process. He then left Billy unconscious on a park bench, and when he awoke, Billy returned home and told his mother what had happened, and immediately his mother reported William Bonin to the police. On November 26, 1968, at approximately 12 a.m., Bonin picked up 17-year-old hitchhiker John Treadwell. Like he had with Billy, Bonin began asking Treadwell about quote-unquote fags and homosexuality before accelerating the vehicle and pulling out a handgun. When Bonin parked in a secluded area, he raped John before threatening him, claiming he had friends who'd aid in avenging him if he told, quote-unquote, the man, any of what had happened. During the assault, John was also bludgeoned with a tire iron. On December 4th, 1968, it was reported to the Torrance Police Department by 17-year-old Alan Pruitt that a man with medium-length dark hair and olive complexion had offered him a ride before deviating from the highway and handcuffing and raping him. Alan reported to police that while driving, the man became visibly angry before asking Alan whether he, quote, knew there were homosexuals in this world. Five weeks later, on January 1st, 1969, Bonin offered a ride to 12-year-old Lawrence Bretman in Hermosa Beach, California. Ignoring the boy's pleas to let him go, Bonin began threatening Lawrence and parked north of Hawthorne Boulevard in Palo Verde North, where he forced Lawrence to perform oral sex on him, molesting and robbing him at gunpoint. He then threatened to kill Lawrence if he ever reported the incident to police. On January 12, 1969, at approximately 9 p.m., it was reported that Bonin had picked up 18-year-old hitchhiker uh, Jesus Mongay, asking him about homosexuality before offering him $20 to perform oral sex on him. When Jesus attempted to get out of the car, Bonin punched his stomach and chest before squeezing his genitals, handcuffing him, and forcing Jesus to perform oral sex on him, after which Bonin raped Jesus as well. During the assault, Bonin threatened Jesus, stating, quote, I'll rip your nuts off if you don't cool it. So he was just like, I don't even, I don't even have to say this, but I'm going to say it anyway. He was off the fucking wall. Like this disgusting leech of a human being. Like this is all within the span of like less than a year. Yeah, he starts in November of 1968 with Billy Jones. And then Jesus was in January of 1969. So what is that? November, December, January. three months, not even two and a half. Like that's absolutely like insane. And the fact that this is getting, I mean, I know bureaucracy takes time, whatever, like police are doing their work, blah, 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 whatever. But the fact that there were multiple victims that went and reported it to police and all of these stories are very, very similar. Young boy picked up hitchhiking. It's asked questions about like homosexuality. And then when they, you know, try to get out of the car that's when bonin snaps that's when they are beaten and assaulted like it's it's like textbook he does it by a certain way every single time so the fact that there are more than one of these young men who went to the police and told the police about their assault and the police were just like sitting there with like their fucking thumbs up their ass like what are you guys doing get get out there and like start figuring shit out you know whatever whatever (laughs) but yeah so Bonin was just absolutely losing his mind and had no care whatsoever didn't give a shit if he let it's almost like he felt like he was untouchable like when you're young you feel like you're literally invincible I feel like that is how he felt but in the absolute worst of ways because he felt like he just couldn't get caught for doing the absolutely heinous shit that he was doing at this time um so I guess I need to take back. I was shit talking the police, but <laughs> by this point, there were efforts being made by local police to uh, locate who they believe now at this point, after having multiple victims come forward, was a serial rapist. And they were looking for a person that fit the description that many of the victims had been able to provide to them. And that, of course, was a very accurate description of William Bonin. On January 28, 1969, at 2.30 in the morning, an El Segundo policewoman confronted Bonin, who had frightened 16-year-old runaway Timothy Wilson on... Oh, God. 
Oh, who has, sorry, who had a frightened 16-year-old runaway Timothy Wilson present with him in his mother's vehicle. So essentially, this police officer catches him in the act. Um, Noting Bonin's frantic state and similar profile to the rapist, she promptly searched him and she found handcuffs in the vehicle. And then she was like, all right, yeah, you're coming with me. So during the arrest, Bonin repeatedly advised her to incarcerate him before sobbing and insisting that he was not responsible for his actions. So again, we have somebody gets caught and they're all of a sudden like, oh God, please arrest me. Like, it makes me think of the weepy voiced killer. If you've listened to that episode where he would literally call the police, like, you guys have to catch me. Why haven't you caught me yet? Like, okay. First, shut the fuck up. (laughs) Secondly, if you genuinely wanted to be put in jail so you did not do these things anymore, like, are your legs broke? Walk yourself into the police station, confess, and say, please lock me up. I am a danger to society. Instead... They put on this fucking farce where they're like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, I didn't mean to do this. I'm so you have to put me in jail. Like, do you think that's going to like garner sympathy for you? Genuine, genuine question. (laughs) Like, I wish I could like talk to these people and be like, what the fuck was going through your head when you were doing this shit? Like, were you just trying to make yourself seem sympathetic? Like saying you weren't responsible for your actions? Like, dude, what the hell? What are you talking about? What are you talking about? What is going on in your brain? I don't know. It's a fucking bag of cats in there. So he does get indicted on five counts of kidnapping, four counts of sodomy, one count of oral copulation, and one count of child molestation against the five individuals he had abducted and assaulted, or in the case of the final boy he had abducted, attempted to assault since that previous November. In each instance, Bonnet had handcuffed or otherwise restrained his victim before forcibly engaging in sodomy, oral copulation, and methods of torture, which included bludgeoning about the head with a tire iron, choking one victim until he had neared unconsciousness, and the squeezing of two of his victim's testicles. In March 1969, Bonnet underwent two psychiatric examinations. He was determined to be a sexual psychopath who had little control over his impulses and showed signs of depression and inappropriate emotional responses, which like, no shit. Though he initially denied any early childhood abuse, Bonin confessed to being fondled at age eight and suspected or suspecting he was molested on various occasions between nine and 12 years old. He also expressed a belief that his Vietnam service contributed to his criminal behavior emphasizing his difficulties in seducing female partners since his return. In the final evaluation, he was found to be, quote, seriously lacking insight and responsibility, unquote, for crimes committed since his childhood. Bonin pleaded guilty to molestation and forced oral copulation and was sentenced to the Escadero State Hospital in June of 1969 as a mentally disordered sex offender considered amenable to treatment. Bonin arrived at the Atascadero State Hospital on June 17, 1969. He was subjected to a battery of psychiatric examinations, which revealed that he possessed a higher IQ of 121 and displayed traits of manic depression, sexual sadism disorder, and antisocial personality disorder. Which again, I feel like we see this so many times, like high IQ, anti-personality disorder, person turns into a serial killer, a serial rapist, And it's like, I wonder if there's, I'm going to look into this, if there's been any studies of like the correlation to high IQ to like that sort of like mental illness. Like that's really, that's really curious. I feel like I'm going to look into that. If any of you guys have ever looked into that or have any knowledge on that stuff, like hit me up on Instagram and let me know. I think that'd be a really interesting conversation. Um, There was also a physical examination done, which revealed extensive scars on Bonin's head and buttocks, which he claimed to have no memory of obtaining, but were likely sustained in that Franco-American orphanage that him and his brothers were at. This lack of acknowledgement led experts to conclude Bonin repressed memories of the more extreme aspects of his childhood abuse. Psychiatrists noted that Bonin had a defensive, aggressive attitude toward other patients and refused to acknowledge his homosexuality. Despite this, Bonin willingly participated in experimental programs and was generally considered a non-violent, helpful, and conscientious patient by staff. 
Yeah, probably because there's like no boys for him to rape in this facility. On July 7, 1971, Bonin was sent to the California Medical Facility, having been declared unsuitable for further treatment due to the repeated due to repeated sexual engagement with inmates. Well, I guess I spoke too early. <laughs> um, two of whom were mentally challenged, which resulted in his being beaten on several occasions. Bonin was released from prison on June 11, 1974, after doctors concluded he was, quote, no longer a danger to the health and safety of others. Which, like, let's just sit with that for a second. Let's just sit with that. So he gets out on June 11th, 1974. And he, you know what? I said it was less than a year since he got out of prison that he had assaulted David McVickers, but it was actually just over a year. So he gets out of prison again, June 11th, 1974, and the assault on, on David McVickers happens in September of 1975. So, like, just barely over a year. Like, he made it just barely over a year before he couldn't resist doing some fuck shit again. After he got out of prison, Bonin rented an apartment in Hollywood where he unsuccessfully tried to integrate himself into the local gay community. So it looks like he was finally trying to accept that part of him, but not doing very well. This failure soon led Bonin to move back in with his parents who were living in a new home in Downey. I wonder if his father gambled their other house away again. I wouldn't be surprised. Um, Bonin worked as a bartender and then as a truck driver, but was fired from that job only a few months after for crashing one of the trailers that he was driving. He was like, woo, fuck it, yeah. He was like Grand Theft Autoing it around town probably and just fucking crashed it. <laughs> I honestly have no idea, but it seems like he'd be doing some shit like that. Bonin also attempted to go back to school, attending community college for two semesters in 1975. Um, however, no matter how hard he tried to distract himself, Bonnet could not resist giving into his continued urges for sexual violence. This is what led to the kidnapping and rape of David McVicker that Bonnet committed on September 8th of 1975. Bonnet pleaded guilty to the attack on David and was sentenced to 1 to 15 years in prison. Which, like, we, y'all, we gotta, we gotta close the gap on that a little bit. Like, 1 to 15, like, one year is nothing. And 15, like, close the gap, man. Like, I would, I feel like it should be something more along, like, 10 to 15. Because that's, like, you can group that in, like, the same bundle of being, like, wow, that's a lot of time to spend in prison versus, like, 1 to 15. Like, if you get out in one year, that's a slap on the wrist. 15 years, I mean, 15 years for a crime as brutal as what he committed against David McVicker. Like, you should be in prison for the rest of your life. But still, like, you're either going to get out in a year and it's like, oops, don't do that again. Haha, slap, slap on your wrist or 15 where it's like, OK, like you actually did a decent amount of time. You know, it's not good if you get out of prison because knowing this motherfucker, he was definitely going to offend again. But like, at least if you give him the, like 15 years, like you can try to make it seem like you actually gave a shit about getting this man locked away. But, like one year is like a fuck you. Like, I don't know. I don't know. I'm ranting. But like one to 15 years. Like, I don't know. I don't know who's got to figure that out. But like, we should we should close that gap. Anyways. So in 1977, he's back in prison now. Bonin was subject to further psychiatric examination. The results of this evaluation indicated his sexual involvement with young boys related to his mother's micromanagement of his life. So again, going back to the mommy issues. In prison, Bonin completed mathematics courses and over 2,400 hours of vocational training as a machinist in order to secure employment, showing significant progress in individual therapy sessions. As a result, Bonin was released from detention on October 11, 1978. So again, let that sink in. The assault happens in September of 1975. He gets out of prison October of 1978 for a brutal kidnapping and rape in which he almost killed this young boy. Two years. Honestly, probably not even. Like, one and a half. Insane. Absolutely insane to me. Yes, he got 18 months, like, of probation, but, like, again, slap on the wrist. We need to stop doing this. Stop giving people slaps on the wrist for, like, brutal, sexually violent crimes. Please. So, it should come to no surprise that Bonin was not actually rehabilitated in any way, shape, or form from prison, and was very much indeed still a threat to society when he was released. 
Bonin moved into an apartment at the Kingswood Village Complex in Downey, located approximately one mile from his parents' house in November of 1978. Bonin became well acquainted with his neighbor, Everett Scott Frazier, and frequented Frazier's parties that were full of young men, drugs, and alcohol. So, like, the perfect storm here, essentially. Frazier actually considered Bonin a very close friend, and the two often exchanged stories of having sex with teenage boys. So two just, like, fucking monsters just, like, hanging out with each other. Which is, like, it always seems to, like, be like that. Like, how do the most deranged people always end up finding each other? It makes me think of, like, David Parker Ray and, like, Cindy Hindi or, uh, like, Lawrence Bittaker and uh, Roy Norris. Like, I mean, they met in prison, so that's how two fucking crazy people find each other. But, like, the fact that there are so many, like cases where there's pairs and you're like how do you people find each other it just it makes me wonder it really makes me wonder and like they ended up being neighbors like what are the chances that two absolutely heinous individuals like moving next to each other i don't know some sort of like fucking weird ass horrible divine intervention say. so bonin's parole concluded in april of 1979 and shortly thereafter bonin and his younger brother paul who was working as a plumber at the time relocated to the rural community of Silverado, California, and ran a neighborhood bar called the Alpine Inn. Unable to obtain a permanent liquor license, though as a result of Bonin's criminal record, the business venture was quite short. On July 19, 1979, Bonin purchased a 1972 Ford E100 shorty van while living in Silverado with Paul. Through his frequent attendance at Frazier's parties, Bonin became acquainted with 21-year-old porcelain factory Warner, worker, occultist, and part-time magician Vernon Robert Butts and 18-year-old Gregory Matthews Miley. Described by acquaintances as, quote, shy and easily led, unquote, by others, Butts attempted suicide on three occasions prior to meeting Bonin and held an obsession with death and witchcraft. He performed public magic, public magic at schools, privately for small groups, and for children's parties in which he charged $30 per show to perform for audiences. Butts was later speculated by court prosecutors to have developed a fascination with sadistic homosexual activity while in jail. Bonin held Butts in high regard for his social popularity and for empowering him, describing him as being very intelligent. Although both lived externally heterosexual lifestyles, they soon became lovers, with Butts also introducing Bonin to the tabletop role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons, in which Butts organized and advertised weekly gaming events at his own residence. Butts also held quote-unquote mystery parties, in which up to 16 people searched for various murder artifacts in the city of Downey, such as a hairpin or an ice pit. Like, if if I didn't know, like, where this was going and didn't already know about like William Bonin being involved in all this like honestly like this sounds like a fun time like go over and play Dungeons and Dragons hell yeah go on freaking scavenger hunts like mystery hunts around the city with like my friend who's a straight up magician like shit that sounds really fun but then when you throw in like the added fact that this is William fucking Bonin and this guy who, you know, no spoiler alerts coming, like no spoilers, but like he's not a good fucking person either. Then it's like, uh, yeah, actually, mm, let's not do any of that. But like the group of like actually good people just having a good time. Like, fuck yeah, let's play D&D. Let's go on a scavenger hunt. Hell yeah. That seems like it'd actually be really fun. <laughs> um... So as a result of these mystery parties and of playing Dungeons and Dragons, um, Bonin and Butts frequently found themselves discussing the subject of death. Months later, Bonin suggested that they rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker during one of those discussions. And instead of like being like, no, Butts was like, yeah, sure. Again, like, get better fucking idols, people. Like, get better friends. What are you doing? get psychological help if anybody i knew like i don't care i don't care who you are you could be my best friend you could be my fucking mother if you're like let's kill somebody no no let's not just kill somebody let's kidnap rape and then kill them and you're being like i'd be like "Eh, shut the fuck up like what a bad joke but then you like you're actually serious about it bro bye 911 hello like this person right here like, I don't care who you are to me and what relationship we've had prior to this point. We're not vibing with that. That's fucking weird. Anyways, so yeah, Bonin and Butts 
two fucking weird-ass peas in a pod. Disgusting. Both of them need to go. So now we're going to get into um, who is Bonin's first known murder victim. And this was 13-year-old Thomas Lundgren. Thomas was last seen leaving his parents' house in Reseda at 10.50 in the morning on May 28, 1979. Shortly before his abduction, Lundgren had reportedly told friends that a man had offered to meet him at a skate park to take photos of him for a skateboarding magazine. Thomas's body was discovered clad only in a t-shirt, shoes, and socks um, that same afternoon in Agora. An autopsy revealed that Lundgren had suffered emasculation and extensive bludgeoning, quote, from an object like a tire jack handle, unquote, to his face and head with his skull sustaining multiple fractures. In addition, Thomas had been slashed across the throat, extensively stabbed about the chest and stomach, and strangled. His underwear, jeans, and severed genitals, bearing several bite marks, were discovered strewn in a field close to his body. Experts later theorized that Bonin's brutality towards Thomas was a way for Bonin to try to kill his own homosexual desire towards the boy. Vernon Butts assisted Bonin in the abduction, rape, and murder of Thomas and would go on to be an accomplice in eight more murders with Bonin. Bonin again, with the assistance of Butts, continued his murder spree on August 4, 1979. On this night, Bonin drove from Silverado Canyon to a drive-in movie theater to spend time with Butts in Westminster. He soon suggested that they rape and murder a teenage hitchhiker. Butts agreed, and Bonin then picked up 17-year-old Mark Shelton, who was hitchhiking on the Pacific Coast Highway, and offered Mark $400 for sexual services. According to Bonin, he started fondling Mark before Butts began squeezing his genitals, prompting the boy to scream. As Bonin drove into the Cajun Pass in San Bernardino County, Butts entertained the boy with magic tricks before performing oral sex on him. Reaching an abandoned gas station, Bonin parked the vehicle and then proceeded to rape Mark. Enraged by Mark's fear and resistance, Bonin immediately began to beat him, squeezing his genitals and driving his knee into his face until he lost consciousness. Mark was then strangled twice over a 15-minute period with Butts' assistance. He was also violated with foreign objects, including a stick, causing his body to enter a state of shock, which proved fatal, before being discarded beside a gravel road in the Cajun Pass of San Bernardino County. Bonin and Butts did not wait long to continue their murders after killing Mark Shelton. It was just the following day that the two encountered 17-year-old German exchange student Marcus Grabs while he was hitchhiking along the same highway that Mark Shelton had been. According to Bonin, he first engaged in consensual sex with Marcus, who agreed to let Bonin tie him up. After they had finished, Bonin pulled out a buck knife and used it to threaten Marcus, and Butts drove the van back to Bonin's home. During the drive, Bonin continually raped and beat Marcus, and when Marcus fought back after Bonin had squeezed the genitals, Bonin became furious and started repeatedly stabbing Marcus with a buck knife. Marcus was strangled and stabbed a number of 77 times. Bonin and Butts then discarded Marcus's nude body in Malibu Creek, where it was discovered not long after. Marcus still had orange nylon cord loosely wrapped behind his head and a piece of ignition wire around one of his ankles. On August 9, 1979, Bonin was again detained for molesting a 17-year-old boy in the coastal community of Dana Point. This violation of the conditions of his parole should have resulted in Bonin being returned to prison. However, an administrative error committed prior to Bonin's scheduled court date resulted in his release. Which is like, people, get your shit together. If you are in charge of admin work that is going to be the crux of like a violent offender getting put back in prison or getting released back onto the streets and you fuck that up, like, I don't care what the hell was going on in your brain, the office, where the fuck you were that day, like, you should be fired. I hope that person who fucked that up was fired. Like, honestly. I don't have any sympathy for that because like he should have been back in prison. He should have been back in prison. It just, it literally drives me insane. Anyways, moving on. 
On August 13, 1979, Everett Fraser drove to pick Bonin up from the Orange County Jail where he had been incarcerated. Fraser later recalled that as he drove Bonin home, Bonin made a statement which Fraser had interpreted at the time as an expression of remorse. He said, quote, No one's going to testify again. This is never going to happen to me again. Um, but this was not a statement of remorse. It was a threat that Bonin would make good on. After this point, none of the boys that Bonin abducted would live to testify against him. And we will pick up with those murders again in part two. So, you know what? Honestly, I don't know why I phrased it like that. I feel like I might have got my dates weird. Because um, these murders happen. No, that's very similar, I guess. No, I know the boys that I spoke about. I don't know. Anyways, but he did make that statement. And he was very, very adamant that he was not going to... Like, he was going to do everything he could in his power, essentially, to make sure that he would not be caught again. Instead of just, you know, stopping what he was doing, he was like, I'm just going to make it so, you know, I'm going to... No one's ever going to be alive to testify against me. Like, I think there were a few... Um, I could be wrong here. Oh, wait. Yeah, no. I don't know what I'm saying, you guys. It's been a long day. Because on August 9, 1979, he molested a 17-year-old boy. He did not murder that boy. That boy then testified against him, and that's why he was in jail. And then the administrative error that fucked up got him released. So I was right. My notes are right. I need to stop doubting myself. Um, so yeah, he makes that threat. Fraser thinks it's a statement of remorse, but it is very much a threat that nobody is ever going to survive to be able to testify against him. And he, you know, unfortunately did, did really make make good on that threat that he made and you know there's unfortunately a lot more murders to talk about um way too much to fit in one part which is why again i'm splitting this in part two so that is what we're going to pick up with in part two is those additional murders um we'll talk about his arrest the you know court proceedings and the aftermath of that um and that will all be in part two so, you know, before we go, just some general housekeeping things. I'm going to try to get back to a like regular um, episode release schedule. What I really want to try to do is, you know, go back to hashtag TSRH Tuesdays. So new episodes will drop on, on Tuesday. I'm going to try to do my best to record them beforehand. So I'll have them drop at like, you know, 12 p.m. Eastern time on Tuesdays, like right in the afternoon, and then I can have them pre-recorded and, you know, set them on a, a set schedule to to be released every Tuesday. And I'm going to really try to shoot to do um, two episodes a month, so bi-weekly Tuesdays, so we can get back onto a nice, regular, regular episode release schedule. So... Again, if you're listening to this on the day that it was released, it is Tuesday the 13th. So then we should expect if I can stick to my guns for part two to be released on, on Tuesday the 27th. So keep an eye out for that. I promise I will do my very best to stay with that schedule. But, you know, sometimes life happens and, you know, we don't release an episode for five months <laughs> and you know hopefully me and autumn can also figure out the situation and you know get on zoom and try to you know do that but like let me know if you guys would be down to have some other co-hosts on here like maybe i can get die die in to do an episode with me again maybe i can convince lucas to get on one of these episodes maybe i'll get steph back and we'll just kind of have like a revolving door of hosts who would like to be on this podcast with me so let me know if you guys would be down for that. Um, but I'm just glad to be releasing an episode again. I hope you guys are glad to have another episode. Um, so yeah, let me know in the comments what you thought of part one, what you're anticipating for part two. If you made it this far, drop a hashtag fuck William Bonin because he sucks. <laughs> um, and let me know too, like hopefully the situation I'm trying to do with the background music actually works because I feel like that would be kind of legit if I can make it work. Um, let me know what you think about the background music. So, you know, please follow me on Instagram at TSRH Podcast. That's where all the photos about the cases go. That's where any sort of like updates about cases that are coming soon are going to be. Oh, and I'm trying a new thing with like the layout of the Instagram post. So like, give me your thoughts on that too. 
Um, if Facebook is more your vibe, you can follow us on Facebook at TSRH Podcast. And if you have like any case suggestions, anything, or you just want to shoot us an email for whatever, you can email us at TSRHpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, but anyways, thank you so much for listening. If you made it this far, appreciate you. Love you. Um, but thanks so much for listening. And I will catch you in the next one. Uh, bye.